There's more going on behind the scenes, beyond our known space-time dimension than meets the unaided eye. That's one of the messages and the lessons out of the book of Revelation. There's more going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of until we open this book and see the visions that, that John was privileged to see. And what we'll see here in chapter 4 that Sarah just uh, beautifully read for us is a scene of the one true almighty God, the creator God, the redeeming God, the, the reality-making God being praised and glorified and worshipped as he absolutely is worthy of in a ceaseless, never-ending outflow of praise. And that we get to be invited into that very praise. So if you haven't been with us uh, in the fall, or if you've never heard Revelation, that might be a little trippy. It's a little trippy? It is. I've heard it many times, and it's still, wow, what's going on? But we started uh, the book of Revelation in the fall, and we're going to continue now with the new year through the spring, going through the whole book of Revelation, uh, a book that's mysterious, it's perplexing at times, it's very complicated uh, at, at first blush, but trust me when I say this is the most powerful book in the New Testament. The things that God reveals to us in this revelation are so powerful, and yet so often in the church, it's never opened, or it's just referred to in passing, or maybe we have a praise song that makes reference to the book of Revelation, and that is a crying shame, because I think if you've been with us, I know I've experienced that, I've heard from some of you, this has been a very rich and empowering uh, series so far. So let's get into the series, back in chapter 4. John the Apostle, he's an old man by now, into his uh, 80s, or later maybe into his early 90s, 60 years before the events occurred in Nazareth, meeting the Messiah, of walking with Jesus. And here, all these years later, uh, John finds himself uh, exiled to the island of Patmos, which is in the middle of the Aegean Sea, this rocky penal colony uh, where he was left by the empire just to rot and die. Why? What was his crime? Sedition. Sedition is stirring up trouble and, and rebellion among the people against uh, the state, in this case the empire, and against the emperor. Stirring them up to rebel against the empire. That was uh, the charge against John. What did John actually do? What was his sedition? He preached the gospel. He spoke the word of God. He gave the testimony of Jesus. And that was so radical and it was so revolutionary that it, was, it caused so much angst and concern among uh, the power elite, especially from the emperor down, that great persecution was overflowing the church at that time. And rather than turn him into an instant martyr, they sent him off uh, to this rock to die. And there John is on a Sunday, a Sunday, a time of worship, and he's looking out across the sea. He's looking to the east, to Asia Minor, uh, where there are seven churches in particular, but really representing all the churches. And he's praying for them. He knows the hardship that they're under, the pressure that they're under, the persecution, the confusion Inside some of these churches, there's false teaching happening. There's, there's giving in to uh, temptation. There's all sorts of waywardness. There's also people there 
are doing their, their very best to trust and walk in the way of Jesus. And they're paying a hefty price. And it's in that context that John hears a voice like a trumpet, and he has a vision of Lord Jesus who, who sends to the angels that, repre- that are representatives overseeing these churches, and through the messenger of John, a series of letters, things that he wants. These seven churches, and we, we talked about uh, numbers being very, being very important in Revelation, seven being a perfect number, so really all the churches, what he wants them to hear. And then we come here to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, John is invited into the heavenly throne room and sees God the Father on the throne uh, being worshipped by, by all of heaven. And it's this magnificent scene that we see here in chapter 4. And then John's uh, given this, this vision of God on his throne and then we're going to see in chapter 5, he's going to, we're going to see the lamb that was slain there beside the throne and, and all of heaven engaged in worship. How trippy is that? I mean, imagine the scene. John gets to see behind the curtain. He, he sees uh, behind uh, this closed door that's open to him what's happening in heaven. That portrays the future working out of the victory of Jesus on the cross. Before we jump in, I'd encourage you to do a couple things. One, I would encourage you uh, to have uh, your Bible open or the, the uh, ESV notebook, notebooks of Revelation handy. If you didn't, that's okay. Maybe something on a digital version or maybe on the screen. But as we go into this, this first uh, sermon of the new year, it's going to feel a little bit like a Bible study. We're going to go verse by verse to try to unpack the meaning of what's going on. Now, if you're interested in joining a small group, and David mentioned signing up for small groups, and now's the time to do that. You can swing by the uh, next environment to sign for a small group. Small group leaders, get ready uh, for Revelation chapter 4 and following. I, I shared this with our leaders uh, a couple of months ago, that if you only come to your small group with the questions that I'm going to prepare each week for, uh, for your Bible study, you will be... <laughs> Unprepared. I cannot prepare you enough on one little sheet of paper. But I'm going to do my darndest to, to give you, to give all of us, some things that we can study on our own to get, dig deeper into God's word. And so even as we're looking at this, the first notes I'd encourage you to write down would be these three references to scripture that you can study on your own. Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, and Daniel chapter 7. Those are going to help infuse meaning into what we're going to try to study in just uh, the next uh, uh, 20 minutes or so. You see, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and John has almost over 500 allusions to the Hebrew Scriptures, to the Old Testament, impact into those 404 verses. It's as if he's trying to, to make sense of something that is beyond comprehension, and the best thing he can do is go back to God's words. It's, it's like this. It's like this part of Scripture. I've, I'm seeing this as making sense over here. If John was a contemporary, maybe he'd make reference to uh, the, the last Star Wars movie. I don't know. He'd probably get really bad reviews. I don't know if that would go over well. But instead, thank, thank God, uh, literally... <laughs> John relies on scripture and not on pop culture to help us make sense of what's actually happening in heaven. So let's start with verse 1. And as we go through this, again, if you have your own Bible 
or you have one from the back of the room, or you have an app. I'm just going to give you ideas of things that you might uh, underline and highlight to come back to you. Verse 1, after this, I looked, and behold, if you could circle behold, 19 times the commandment to, to behold, to look, to look up, is given throughout the book of Revelation. It's, it's as if John is saying, if you but open your eyes and look beyond your troubles, beyond your suffering, beyond the hard circumstances you find yourself in, beyond what the empire is pressing down upon you, look, behold, and you will see the glory of God. He said, I look and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice uh, which I had heard uh, speaking to me like a trumpet, that's back to chapter 1, verse 10, that's Jesus speaking to him. His voice sounds like a trumpet, it's so loud. It said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this or what must soon take place. He's about to unfold for John all this vision. It's one big vision. All these visions are, are one big piece of the puzzle. That's why we, when we study Revelation, we have to study it from chapter 1 all the way to 22 because it's one big thing that's unfolding in the age of the church. And now here we are in the, in the last days, in the end times, and these things they're unfolding the future working out of Jesus' victory. He says, come up here that I might show you what must soon take place. Verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. I'd encourage you to underline the words, I was in the Spirit Again, John's trying to describe the indescribable. We're going to hear the word like a lot. He's like, it's like this, it's like that. It's like back in the 80s, the Valley Girls speak like, 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 like. It's all over the place because it's not exactly like this, but it's like this. You know what I'm trying to say? That's what John's trying to help us figure out. And he says he was in the spirit. Or elsewhere it will say he was caught up in the spirit. If you're looking for some sense of, a, of an outline of our whole study it's going to turn on the four times, so this is now part two of four parts, when John says he was in the Spirit or he was caught up in the Spirit. Four turn, turning points in the Revelation that sort of outlines the whole book. Chapter 1, verse 10. Oh, baby. Oh, baby, we're praying for you, baby. Chapter 4, verse 2, 17, 3, and 21, verse 10. Those are are four ways of dividing up uh, the, the book of Revelation. And it says that he's in the spirit. And he's conscious. Boy, can somebody bless this? Let's just pray, Lord. Whatever's going on with this, this dear little one, Lord, we pray the soothing comfort of this precious little one's parents. We thank you, Lord, that we are a church family, that uh, wrestling and moving around and coughing and sneezing and crying to all of it, Lord, is welcome in your sight because we're here as family. So bless them, Lord. Just watch over them. Help me to, uh, to stay uh, on point, but we want to bless that family. Yeah. Amen. Amen. See, back in, back in Maryland, I'd have, there was a lot of back and forth. I had a lot more uh, people, African-Americans, they were like, help him, Jesus, help him. There's a lot, a lot of back and forth. The guy help me. There, there you go. That's a, little, that's a little taste in 2020. Okay. So he was in the spirit. He was conscious and aware of his surroundings, and yet he was having this spiritual experience. And so this is difficult for us to wrap our brains around, but 
John's visions, listen, are very much real and yet aren't meant to be taken literally. They really are really happening. But, but we're going to have to understand the symbolic meaning, the, the allusion to Scripture, these references that he's making, and unpack them looking into Scripture. So John sees this throne, and it's, it's dazzling stones uh, around it. And the reference to stones goes all the way back to um, Exodus chapter 28. The high priest uh, wore a breastplate with beautiful stones, as we see here, as we'll see again in Revelation 21. I love the Apostle Paul's uh, reference to his own vision of Jesus when he was caught up into heaven. He says in 1 Timothy 6.16, he says, God exists in unapproachable light. John's, you know, a wonder worker with words. He uses a lot of words, but he just leaves it there. Unapproachable light. And then he stops. Well, John goes into more detail. That unapproachable light this dazzling light is being reflected, bing, 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 off of these stones. And around the throne, what do we see? A rainbow. Like the one given to Noah, remember? After the flood, God is a sign of, of his covenant promise never to, to judge the earth again in this way. As a sign of his covenant of patient mercy on God's people, he gives Moses a beautiful rainbow. And here around the throne, we see a rainbow. We'll see again and again a lot of judgment in this book, a lot of God working out his judgment, rolling out his judgment on the wicked. But all of it has a purposefulness of bringing recreation and restoration, symbolized by that rainbow, the presence of God's covenant, mercy, and grace. Uh, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. What's going on here? Now notice what, what, I'm, what I'm doing. I'm reading the text, and then I'm thinking during the week, but I'm figuring it out here. It's written down so I can remember well, what does that mean in Scripture? So I'm not going to a stack of books or commentaries or online. And there's great resources online. There's great books in my library. First, let's look at Scripture and let Scripture define Scripture. Okay, so that's, that's where we're going. If you're wondering, like, how does he get all this stuff? It's in the book. Reading. Okay, just checking. Just checking. Okay, 24 refers to the order of priests that served in the Old Testament temple. 1 Chronicles 24, verses 7 to 19, speaks to the 24 uh, priests, the order of, of priests that served in the temple. So that's the first reference to 24. But it also symbolizes all of God's people. How do I get there? Well, we have the 12 Old Testament tribes of Israel... And we have the 12 apostles of the New Testament. And 12 plus 12, future ready? 25, they said. Oh, boy. Come on now. The 12, a beautiful, perfect number of, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, that Those names will be written on all the gates, the 12 gates. Uh, 
of the New Jerusalem and the 12 apostles, and their names will be uh, written on the foundations representing all of God's people. Here, here, here's another beautiful reference. Uh, chapter 15, turn with me to chapter 15, verse 3. It's speaking of the scene again and it, it, of, of all of God's people coming together. Chapter 15, uh, verse 3, it says, uh, it says, they sing a song of Moses and a song of the Lamb, a song of Jesus. So uh, half the room is singing uh, to, about Moses, who was the mediator, who was the lawgiver, and the other is singing about Jesus, the perfect and fullness of lawgiving, and they're harmonizing together. They're singing this message together. So the, the 24 elders, in some way, we're not quite there yet of who they are, but they represent all of God's people. Now here's the question, who are they? Are these elders glorified Christians, people who've, who've ascended into heaven and, and are now in heaven right now, worshiping God? You say, oh, look, I, I recognize Uncle Harry, is, uh, Aunt Susan. Is, is that who it is? Or are they angels worshiping eternally in God's presence? And, and there's, this is, again, this is one of these places where there's differing opinions of people of goodwill who all love Jesus, but they disagree on these subjects. Let's look at the evidence in the text. It says they're clothed in white garments, and they, they have what on their heads? A crown. And Jesus referred in the chapters we've already studied in chapter 2 and 3 to both of these being gifts, prizes to those who remain faithful who don't turn away, who, who remain faithful to the Lord, who stick it out through thick and thin, he has promised, we see in chapters 2 and 3, among other things, that, that you would be clothed in white garments, that your name would be written in the book of life, that you would be crowned. There's a reference uh, uh, to, uh, let's see, Matthew 19 and Luke 22. Jesus speaking to his apostles, and he says to, to his apostles, to his disciples, you will one day have your throne in heaven ruling beside me. Luke, uh, Matthew 19 and Luke 22. And so there's evidence here. There's a couple of examples of, okay, so Pete, is that what you're saying? That they're, they're glorified Christians in heaven right now because they're wearing, well, actually I think they're angels. Oh gosh, yes. Scribble all your notes. Scribble all your notes. Now he says that they're angels. Well, see, this is, a, this is what we do in Revelation. This is why pastors avoid preaching it, because, well, there's evidence here. But on the other hand, and I think, they are angels. Because we will later see these very elders who are representative of the whole church being God's agents of that judgment and working out that judgment that's yet to happen and is happening. Remember in chapters 2 and 3, the angels were identified as the representatives of the seven churches. So angels were assigned to those seven churches with real men and women, boys and girls, but the angels were the ones receiving the letter that was going to be sent to each of those churches. The, 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 the angels represent the people. And then another evidence, Daniel chapters 10 to 12 the angels represent the nations that will come before the Lord. 
either way, let's just get out of our minds the idea of a chubby little baby angel flying around. You have these ideas, there's a lot of that at Christmas time, or kind of an effeminate doll with rosy cheeks flying around. There's none of that in Scripture. When angels show up in the book of Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Daniel, and in Revelation, they are dazzling and they are terrifying. That's why the shepherds have to be told, don't be afraid. I know, we're a lot. So, so get that idea of the chubby little baby angel out of your mind. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We'll get there. And then verse 6, the first part. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. Now, where have we seen that in Scripture before? Exodus chapter 19. At Mount Sinai, the Lord God calls Moses and says, go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, that they can come out of slavery and into the wilderness so that they might worship me. And, and Moses leads them out, and they end up at this mountain, and he warns them, don't even touch the mountain or, lest you die. And they look up, and they are terrified by the sight they see. And what do they see? And what do they hear? thunderous, lightning, flashes, smoke, billowing, the very presence of God coming down. And here we see in Revelation, around the throne room, the source of all that terror is there in the throne room. Flashes of lightning and rumbles and pearls, peals, excuse me, of thunder. Now we see that again multiple times also in the book of Revelation, which could also be an outline of the book, but I don't want to digress too far, but let me just say this. There are three rounds of judgment in the book of Revelation. There are three salvos, like a missile coming. There's the three uh, seals, the three trumpets, and the three, excuse me, the seven seals, the seven, seven trumpets, and the seven bowls being poured out in judgment. And on the seventh of each of those, the seal the trump of the bowl. Are you with me okay? We're okay? And the seventh of each of those is repeated these words of what's happening, of flashes of lightning, of peals of thunder. Only they add an earthquake and a hailstone. Raise your hand if you're afraid of earthquakes. Yeah. Terrifying. The imagery tells us God is awesome and not to be trifled with. But the one who calls us into his presence, who loves us and adopts us and wraps his arms around us that we're, we praise to and we, we sing about and we, we celebrate at Christmas time, the one who invites us to dine at the table is bigger and more awesome than the whole cosmos. Seven torches. Are there seven spirits of God or is there not but one Holy Spirit? Number seven, a perfect number, complete and holy. So uh, the Holy Spirit represented as fire. And here are seven torches, but seven being a complete number. So it's the one Holy Spirit. I know it's a symbol. Stick with me. We're going to see a lot of them. But notice what's before the throne. A sea of glass that's crystal clear. A sea of glass, and it's just like crystal clear. Second Kings 25 
in Solomon's temple, there was just an absolutely beautiful, smooth bronze floor to represent the sea. Throughout the Bible, whenever a sea shows up, it symbolizes chaos and fear, something to be dreadfully afraid of. Think about Jonah out on the sea. Think about the, the disciples out on the sea when Jesus was napping. And what did they say? Don't you care that we're about to die? And with but a word, he calmed the sea. And here in the throne room of heaven, it's as smooth and as clear and as still and as see-through as crystal. What does that mean for us? In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the cray-cray craziness of the world, in heaven, someone's in charge. In heaven, someone is on the throne. And in heaven, there is no chaos. Amen? In worship, we don't just come to God to praise God. I mean, yeah, of course we do. We want to praise you, Lord. This is why we're coming, right? But more than that, it's not just what we bring to the Lord. It's what we receive from him. We have an encounter with a living God. Some of us just need to close our eyes. And then the whole world is opened up to us. Here we are, our, li- our fancy lights aren't working. We're, I'm just under the blazing full light. There's just on or off. Just close your eyes for just a second, everyone. Close your eyes for just a moment. This is what it means to encounter the living God, to turn our attention off of ourselves, off of our neighbors, off of our surroundings, and to turn our attention to the Lord. Open your eyes again. You see, in just a moment's time, you can switch, and you can come into his presence. God wants to show us, and he wants to encounter with us to show us that there's more in life than the things the world wants us to worship. That he should be at the center. He's on the throne. That word throne shows up 14 times in this one chapter. 14 times. Are you on the throne of your world or is God? We're going to celebrate and watch a lot of football, right? You've been watching a lot of football yesterday and today. Maybe you like award shows. The Golden Globes will be on. All the center of attention, all the praise, all the accolades, and all of it is set aside when we have Almighty God before us in this vision. Okay, there's more. Okay, here we go. Verses 6 to 8. <clears throat> Four creatures full of eyes. Mm. This was not, uh, this wasn't in the, the trilogy, was it? Or in the, the nine parts of Star, Star Wars. But what's happening here? I mean, well, I'm, I'm joking a bit with you, but I want you to, tell, I want you to say when I open Scripture, your pastor is also like, what is, what is going on here? Help me understand, Lord. It's okay to say, like, I don't, I don't get it. Well, what's going on? Four living creatures full of eyes that, that look like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle with three sets of wings. What's going on? Well, one thing we do is we look to Scripture. And in the book of Isaiah that I already mentioned, and in the book of Ezekiel, which I already mentioned, these same creatures show up. Okay, there's a clue there. John's walking into this scene that's been seen by other prophets. And so we need to dig into that and understand, well, what's happening here? What might they represent? That's the first thing we want to sort through. What might they symbolize? These strange creatures 
represent the whole created order of animated life. That's what was taught from the times of the first prophets and all the way through, through Revelation. All of human life. The eyes signify God's all-seeingness, God's all-knowing, his omnipotence. These are creatures representing all of, of God's created, ordered life that are used to bring glory to God and are used to, to work out God's purposes. And they will show up again as we study the book of Revelation. So 24 elders, whether they're glorified um, human Christians or, or angels, there's room for debate there. These four creatures that represent all of animated life, and they're there in this endless, ceaseless season of worship. They sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. As the creatures sing, the elders, what are they doing? They're falling down before him, before the one who lives forever and ever, and they're casting their crowns before the Lord. Those crowns were a gift, weren't they? Jesus said they're a prize for your faithfulness. For you being faithful, for you sticking with the Lord through thick and thin, through you living uh, to honor the Lord God, he promises this crown. And yet, these representatives of humankind, of the people of, of God, are casting them down. What are they doing? What does it mean? They're saying, Lord God, everything comes from you. Even the faith to believe is a gift from you. I'm going to give it back to you. It shows us that even even putting faith in Jesus is a gift. Every day is a gift. Breathe in and out. Every breath, a gift from God. And even the faith to be here today is a gift from God. And he deserves all the praise and glory. All of it, just all the accolades, all the prizes, all the awards. We lay at his feet. Well, what we're going to see tonight, we're going to see uh, players uh, on the sidelines say, yeah, I just want to praise God for that. And uh, yeah, I had a great reception and, and I ran through the uh, defense and um, scored a touchdown, right? That's, how, that's just how our world works. Like we give a quick uh, faint face to uh, praise to God and then we move on to our accolades and celebration. Yet here ceaselessly, these worthy ones are saying, only you, O God, are worthy. Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Only God is the beautiful one, the only one who's fitting of a standing ovation, worthy to receive glory, the, the outward greatness of God, to receive honor, the inner, the inner goodness of God, to receive power, the, the outworking of the strength of God. Now how can we give that back to God, what God already has infinitely beyond anything that we could possibly do. How do we give glory and honor and power to God? We do what we were designed to do. We reflect it in worship. Dogs bark, fish swim, birds, or staying fly, you know. And human beings were designed to worship, to reflect back the image that we have as image bearers, to reflect that back to God. The choice, though, is who will you worship? Will you worship some little idol that you can put in your pocket? Or will you worship, as we're taught here, to worship the one true living God? 
Verse 11b, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The core of a biblical worldview is God created all things, number one. And number two, nothing exists apart from God's will. So everything that exists was created by God, and it was created in accordance with God's will. I will be the first to say and admit that it is hard sometimes to understand how God would will and allow some of the terrible things that happen in this world. And yet my misunderstanding doesn't make them any less true than what we see here in Revelation. God is the creator of all things, and God wills all things. They exist and were created by his will. That's what the elders are singing. That God is in control of your life, and God has the right to order the circumstances as he sees fit. And now I'm not going to get blinded by the lights. I want to look into your eyes when I say that. Because I know that's very difficult for some of us to hear. That God's in control of my life and that, that he can do with my life whatever he pleases. The hardship, the suffering, the loss that, that you've experienced. That's why we come together as a church to worship. That's why we lock arms with one another. That's why we, we come together. Say, I, I can't do it this week. I'm with you this week. You got me last week, I'll get you this week. That's why we look to the Lord Jesus. He doesn't give us all the answers, but he says, I'm here with you. Through your suffering, through the hardship, trust, obey, and live. When Ezekiel had the vision of the throne room, he fell over. When Isaiah had the same vision, same response. John fell over as if dead in chapter 1, and he hadn't even gone into the throne room, so he must be quaking in his boots here. That is the legitimate, only optional option of response before the living God, is fear of, of, of our unworthiness. Of my, I'm unworthy, oh God. I, if you saw the things you've, I've done in my life, and I thought, well, you have seen them all? You know them all? You see everything? I'm unworthy. And yet that very throne that seems so scary and so bright and so dazzling, it's a place of praise. Because Jesus takes you by the hand and invites you, even now, to the table. Hebrews 4 to 16, we'll end with this and pray. It says, because of all of what God's shown to us in Jesus and what he's accomplished for us on the cross. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Revelation 4 was written for a people who had terribly great and seemingly insurmountable needs. And I look across this room and I see all sorts of of needs that you've expressed to me or to our elders and fears about the future and uncertainties, this word is for us. God is present. God is in charge. God is being worshiped. And you and I, even today, what we're about to do and have been doing, we are living into eternity now.
Let's pray. So Lord God, as we prepare to come to the table, we pray that you would, in this quiet moment, hear the things that are most upsetting to us, the things that make us most upset or confused or frustrated, things that cause depression, anxiety, fear, dark thoughts, Lord, that creep into our minds, concerns about what's happening in our community, in our state, our nation, and the world. Lord, we're going to take all of that, we're going to wrap it all up, and we're going to set that before you now. Lord, we're going to take our, our crowns, our achievements, our position, our name that we've made for ourselves. We're going to take all those good things and lay that before you as well. Lord God, it's right for us to give our, our thanks and praise to you. That by your spirit, you're present to us, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the very communion of the body and blood of Christ. Pray, Lord, that these elements would be your very grace coming and feeding us, Lord, just as a foretaste of the kingdom, a foretaste of heaven. Bless those, Lord, that come to receive and hear our confession uh, that we want to get right with you, Lord, before we come to the table. It's like washing our hands. We tell our kids to go wash your hands before you come to the table, Lord. We, we want to praise you for, for washing us, cleansing us clean, white as snow. But Lord, we pray that you would hear now our confession, take away any doubt of any shame that we have now that, that you have paid already for it all. Amen.